Happy, glorious Easter Sunday morning. What a difference a year makes. I don't know if you guys remember this. But this time last year, we were all hunkered down. Remember that? Our, our, our hatches were securely battened. We were all patiently waiting for that 14-day curve flattening period to end. And you were all forced to watch Awkward Al and Marty sermon videos. Remember that? It turns out that talking to a camera is a lot harder than you would think. Or at least we made it look that way. <laughs> I would watch mine and he'd say, well, that was awful. And I'd watch his and say, well, you were just as bad. And it was just... But a year later, here we all are together celebrating this great and wonderful day. And the great and wonderful fact that he is risen. So we've been preaching our way through the book of Ephesians uh, this year, and we're going to continue that this morning for reasons that I hope will become obvious as we go through. Um, because our text this week talks about the consequences, deals with the implications of Jesus' resurrection. And as we all know, Easter Sunday is also commonly referred to as Resurrection Sunday. And we remember that Jesus died on a cross, but the, the, the circumstances and the um, the timing of his death were unusual, and the cross did not keep him for very long. He was wrapped in burial cloth, and, and the cloth did not restrict him. He was placed in a tomb, but it could not hold him. A giant rock was placed in front of the tomb, but it did not stop him. And on the third day after his death, the tomb of Jesus, the chosen one, was found empty. Jesus had passed from death to life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this day, uh, this day above all others that proves your great love for your creation. This day that shows us your immeasurable power and your immeasurable grace towards us. We're grateful for the hope that we find in Jesus Christ, hope that promise us, promises us forgiveness of sins now and an eternity with you as adopted sons and daughters. May, be, may we be reminded again this morning of all that that means through the text that we have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of context, for, you, for those of you that haven't been uh, listening to the rest of the series in Ephesians, although it is available online, you really have no good excuse. But for context, remember that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison. I mean, you know, maybe house arrest probably um, rather than a prison cell, but he's got a guard. He, he, he's limited. He's restricted. He's a prisoner. And he writes this letter to the church, to the saints in Ephesus, and he starts by reminding them of the many, many blessings that they have received in the Lord. And he prays that they would continue to grow in their spiritual maturity, that they might understand the exceedingly great value that God has placed on the church. He says, we are his treasure. We are his inheritance. And he prays that the church would understand and somehow tap into the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. And Paul says, and I'm talking about this power I'm talking about, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And we immediately see that Paul writes this letter some 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. And although Jesus resurrected just the one time, the implications of his resurrection are ongoing. 60 years later, 
and today. The impact is timeless. We are all still now affected by an empty tomb. So in chapter 2, Paul encourages, uh, he reminds the church of the ongoing implications of Resurrection Sunday. He reminds them, for example, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Please. Thank you. Kind of worked up a sweat during that music portion there. So, in typical Paul fashion, he starts with a fairly blunt, in-your-face kind of statement to the church. Just think back, he says, to your recent past. Uh, You know, I'm writing now to the saints in Ephesus, but it wasn't so long ago that you were the sinners in Ephesus. He makes the point abundantly clear. He doesn't want there to be any confusion, no equivocation. What was Paul really thinking when he wrote this? Uh, We tend to do a lot of that with, with Scripture these days, and Paul's writing in particular. What did he really mean? It probably wasn't what we think it means. He says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead because of your trespasses and sins. Now, I think we can reasonably assume that Paul's not taking the time to write this letter to a bunch of, you know, corpses. So he's referring to spiritual death here rather than physical death. Spiritual death that is a result of our trespasses and sins. Now, generally speaking, in the New Testament, especially when the Bible uses the word death, it often means separation, a separation from God. So our sin results in us being separated from God. Our physical selves will die, but our souls or spirits will continue and will be separated from God because of our sin. Scripture is pretty clear on this. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So God is holy. We are not. There's this gap there. There's this, there's this separation that naturally exists. So we were sinners just following the course of the world, he says. Following the prince of the power of the air. Now, if you think way, way, way back like a month ago when I did that, that series on spiritual warfare, you might remember that the prince of the power of the air is another name or kind of a weird title um, that is applied to Satan. So Paul draws this direct line from our trespasses and sins to Satan. We're separated from God as a result of our sin, but we're somehow connected to Satan through these same sins. Paul is not claiming that the devil made us do it. The devil does not make us sin. Scripture is clear that we are sinners by nature and by choice. However, that old devil is pretty good at giving us ample opportunity to sin. It's everywhere. That's the reference here to the world that he's talking about. It's the system that has developed. It's a world system supervised by Satan that's built on selfishness and self-satisfaction and power and greed, and it's all about me. Such that when God says, be holy... Satan and the world system says, well, let's be as unholy as possible. Just do what you want to do. Do whatever feels good. Do what's right for you, because it's your truth, after all. Jesus says, be at peace with all men and love your neighbor. Satan says, you know what? Let's get people all riled up over less important things like skin color, or income level, or genders, or mask wearing, or whatever it is we can use to cause chaos and upheaval, let's do that. 
let's keep people separated and divided. So whatever Jesus wants us to do, the devil and all those that follow him are going to push for the opposite. That's the world system that's referred to here. The way of the world is a direct result of the devil working to undo what God has done, which is why he's also referred to as the anti-Christ. So the implication here is if, if we're not committed followers of Christ, then we are, by biblical definition, followers of the prince of the power of the air whom Paul also refers to as the sons of disobedience. And then he explains that. He says the sons of disobedience live according to the passions of the flesh. They're focused on fulfilling the desires of the body and mind, and they are by nature children of wrath. And that doesn't mean that they're just angry all the time, although they could be. He means that they're deserving of God's wrath. They're deserving of God's judgment for the trespasses and the sins. They've rebelled against God, and they're deserving of judgment like all the rest of mankind. Now, I understand this is not an altogether pleasant thing for us to hear. That we're either Christ followers or Satan followers. But there's really no third choice provided for us here. We are either for Christ or we are anti-Christ. Whether we admit it or not, whether we're comfortable with it or not, that's kind of the deal the Bible lays out here. Now, in truth, most people would probably not say that they are opposed to Jesus. You know, he was a good teacher. As far as we know, he was a groovy guy. People liked him. He was all moral and whatnot. We don't have a problem with Jesus. They certainly wouldn't say that they're anti-Christ, for the most part. They're just not, you know, Jesus followers. They don't really dislike Jesus. I mean, they're not sons of disobedience, that doesn't really apply to them. Where that falls apart is when Jesus himself says, whoever is not with me is against me. So again, if you're not with Jesus, if you're not for Jesus, if you're not a committed Jesus follower, then you are by definition against him. Those are the only choices. Those are the only options available to us. And in this state of being against Jesus, You are dead in your trespasses and sins and deserving of God's wrath for having sinned against him. His righteous judgment is set against you, the consequences of which is spiritual death. Again, this is heavy. It is hard to hear. It makes us uncomfortable. Angry, maybe. Hard to accept, perhaps. But fortunately, after Paul wrote, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he did not end there. He continued, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. My favorite two words of this whole text, but God. You are deserving of death for all your sins. You're following Satan, whether you know it or not, whether you admit it or not. You're deserving of God's wrath and judgment, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love 
which God loves us with. But God did not want you to die in your sin. But God did not want you to suffer for your rebellion against him. But God did not want eternal separation from those he created. But God loves you and wants better for you. Even when you were dead in your trespasses. But God made us alive. So God offers us this this possibility of transition from death to life. By God's grace exclusively. It's the only way. It's the only choice. The only option. By grace you have been saved. Not by trying harder. Not by being better. You can be made alive with Christ and through Christ by God's grace alone. So God has acted favorably towards us just because, just because he's rich in mercy. Just because he loves us. God gives us the opportunity to overcome death and separation. So we can stay mad or upset about being called the son of disobedience. We can stay angry over the idea of being punished for our sins, which leads to spiritual death. Or we can rejoice in the fact that God gave us a way out. Now again, I think Paul goes on to explain some of this stuff, so we're not left to wonder what he meant or to you know, make stuff up and fill in our own blanks. He says, God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. Now this is especially poignant against the backdrop of Easter Sunday. The imagery here is pretty strong. It's pretty clear. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, defeated sin and death by rising from the grave. So the immeasurable power of God proved more power, powerful than physical death. And hooray for us, it's more powerful than spiritual death as well. By God's grace and mercy, he saves us from spiritual death and brings this separation to an end. And it turns out that's really just the beginning of what God offers us. As if that's not enough, he raises us up like Christ, with Christ, and seats us with him in the heavenly places. So we've gone from this this position of being separated from God altogether to now being in the throne room with the king. And not just as a visitor with a day pass. We're there for a good long while, for ages to come. And, he says, God's love and power, his immeasurable grace and kindness, will continue to flow towards us throughout the ages in Christ Jesus. We'll never see an end, a decrease, a decline in God's grace and power and kindness. He'll never stop showing his love for us, his kindness toward us. I've thought about that a lot this last week or two, and I I really honestly have a difficult time even beginning to understand what that means. I don't really know that we can have a real understanding of all that this entails. Admittedly, I'm not very bright. Maybe this makes perfect sense for you guys. So I I was kind of going through this thought exercise. I mean, what's, what's like the closest thing I could imagine, that I could identify with? And I came up with this reasonable facsimile of what's contained here. So I'm going to ask you to play along with me. Again, I'm not very bright. You'll probably figure this out before I ever get there. But just imagine with me. Put on your imagination caps for a minute. They'll, they'll tuck nicely under your bonnets. There are no bonnets here today. Dang it. 
So imagine for just a moment that you, you are a homeless person, let's say in downtown Seattle. You've got a criminal past, you have no family, you have nowhere to go, and you end up on the street. And over time, you end up dirty and smelly and mean and territorial, fighting for survival, and weary. And then one day, a big black Mercedes pulls up along the curb next to you. You know, all blacked out windows. And you've seen this before. You know, the nice car drives up, the window rolls down, somebody throws a 20 at you and it speeds off. They've done their good deed for the day. But this time, the car stops and a man gets out. He's well-dressed. He's got really good hair. He smells nice. And he says to you, come on, get in. I'm going to take you to my house. Don't, don't worry about your stuff. I'm going to get you all new stuff. Now, at this point, your weirdo radar kicks in pretty good, right? I mean, what you've got is pretty bad, but you could end up being this guy's pot roast for the evening as far as you know. I mean, it's just, you, you just don't know. It can't be legit, but it's cold and it's wet, and you're at your literal end. And so you get in, and you drive to this man's house, and he's got this, this spread, this mansion. It's next door to Bill Gates' house. It's not a shack. He takes you up to the master bedroom, and he says, you can stay in here. This will be your room. And he pushes a remote, remote control button, and the, the closet doors slowly open, and there's a closet that's bigger than the block you were living on, and it's full of nice clothes. And he says, all this is yours should be your size. You can have all this stuff. He walks you through the rest of the house, and he says, if you get hungry, we, we have a chef on staff. Just call him whenever you want. He can make whatever you need. And you get the best night's sleep you've had in a while, and you wake up in the morning, and he says, come on, we've got a few errands to run. And, and, and he takes you to his bank, and he adds you on as a signatory to all of his accounts. And then you go to his insurance agent, and he adds you as a beneficiary for his, his life insurance. And clearly, this is a Hallmark movie because this does not happen in real life. <laughs> we understand how unusual this would be. People just don't work this way. But continue to imagine for a minute. You, you've got some time here now, and you're kind of feeling more like a reasonable, functional human, and, and, and your memory starts to come back. Those, those fuzzy periods are, are coming back in, and you realize that this good Samaritan, this guy that's taken you into his house, he's welcomed you into his kingdom. He's the father of the young man that you'd killed in a drunk driving accident years earlier. You had committed this horrible atrocity against him personally. And he knows who you are. He recognizes you. He sought you out and does all of this for you anyway. I mean, it's just, it's incomprehensible. It defies logic. And this far-fetched, hard-to-believe story only partially resembles our real relationship with God. We have sinned against him personally. In numerous ways, in numerous times, it was because of our sins that his son died. Whatever good deeds we have, such as they are, will never overcome our bad deeds. We deserve nothing except judgment 
and condemnation. We are the children of wrath. We're deserving of death as a result of our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, rather than consign us to death, God has made us alive in Christ and seated us in the heavenlies with him. He's adopted us into his family. He's named us his beneficiary. We are joint heirs with Jesus because of Jesus. It's incomprehensible. But there's more. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Several different thoughts going on there, but I just want us to see it starts with grace. For by grace you have been saved. God has graciously acted on our behalf. He has given us unmerited favor, unearned acceptance, undeserved benevolence. All this grace flows from God towards us. So God has acted first here for us on our behalf. Because of his great mercy and his great love toward us, he sought us out and extended his grace towards us. He initiated for us the possibility that we can transition from death to life. Even when we were separated from God, even when we were dead in our sins, God sent his son to die on a cross and to be buried in a tomb, and then he raised up Christ. And now he's offered to raise us up with Christ, like Christ, and through Christ. For by grace we've been saved through faith. So God has done all the hard part here. He's come up with this plan. He's put together this, this path to redemption. He set all the wheels in motion. He sent Jesus to die for our sins. He raised Jesus from the dead. He showed us that our sin does not have to result in our eternal separation from God. And then he offers this redemption to us if we just believe it, if we accept it. That's the faith part. All the heavy lifting has been done. There's nothing we can add. There's nothing we bring to the table. In fact, Paul says it pretty clear. This is not your doing. This is a gift from God. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your works. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. Your salvation is not dependent on you. Save one small thing. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So God the Father made the plan. God the Son fulfilled the plan by dying in our place. He was buried in the tomb. He raised from the dead. And with no input, no assistance from us, we contribute nothing, nor is anything expected from us apart from faith. I mean, we, I don't think we can stress this strongly enough. Salvation from death, from the consequences of our sin, is God's grace alone, period. And this is important for us for at least two reasons. The first one, Paul states pretty clearly. 
if it was grace plus how we dress, or grace plus how we comb our hair, I'm sorry, are there bald people here? I didn't mean to leave you out. If it was grace plus how we treat our dogs, then somehow, as human beings, we would find a way to take credit for our own salvation. And you know you would if you could. I mean, we've done some pretty great things to earn God's love. It's no wonder he loves us. We are so lovable. We earned it. I didn't want to let you guys in on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm God's favorite. <laughs> I mean, we, we struggle enough with the super saint mentality <laughs> as it is. You know, I, I mean... I just look around the room, and I'm pretty sure I've accomplished more for the kingdom than most of you have. So, my redemption is I got like plan A. I'm pretty sure I pray more than most of you. I have a prayer language. Do you? Mm hmm. So, my mansion's going to be just a wee bit bigger than your mansion. I mean, Paul seems to say, you know, all that stuff is great, but it doesn't matter. You're saved by God's grace. You just have to believe it. You have to accept it. You have to try to live according to those beliefs. And then God gets all the credit, not you. The second reason I think that grace alone is important, and personally I find this one more significant, uh, We've established that our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of an inheritance from Almighty God, our freedom from eternal separation starts and ends with God, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. Which means there's nothing we can do to lose it. This is huge for us. You're all a bunch of sinners. Our good deeds don't earn God's grace, and our bad deeds don't lose God's grace. Hallelujah. His grace forever remains unearned, unmerited, and undeserved. That will not change. So when you accept God's gift of grace, your past sins are forgiven. Your present, even on the way to church this morning, sins are forgiven. Your next Thursday sins are forgiven. I mean, we see the pattern at work here, right? Jesus went to the cross knowing who he was dying for, and he went anyway. Like the Samaritan in that weak little story I told you. He knew he was dying for a bunch of sinners who were incapable of not sinning. I mean, at best, we're barely capable of sinning less. And he died for us anyway. He died to forgive our sins, all of them, so that we can be reconciled, restored, and united with God. And we just simply need to accept this gift. Just believe that we need to be saved from the consequences of our sin, and that Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only path. He's the only remedy. We need to have faith in him and his plan. And once you do, once you do, you come to truly know that his plan for you is better than your plan for you, and it's not even close. 
I think that's what Paul reminds us of here when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis here to make his point. You were created by a master craftsman. You did not, I'm going to say this again, you did not spontaneously burst forth from an uncaring and unsympathetic ooze. You did not just magically appear because the universe likes you. We're not really sure how that works or why that works. We're just pretty sure you just popped into existence. The fact is, you were intentional. Your existence, your delightful personality, your winning charm, your exceedingly good looks, all thought out, all planned, prepared beforehand. You've been planned from the beginning. You were thought up, you were designed, you were created and reborn in Christ Jesus for a purpose. For good works. Now we need to make the important distinction here that we're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. So when we by faith accept God's gift of salvation, brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus, this change occurs. We begin to step into God's purpose for us, the reason he created for each of us. And we become slowly, but slowly, but steadily more Christ-like. And our increasing Christ-likeness reveals itself in how we live, or it's supposed to reveal itself in how we live. We become more charitable, perhaps, more giving of our time and talent and tithe, maybe, We become more concerned about the welfare of others, friends, family, neighbors. But we don't do it perfectly. We still sin. I mean, there are, in fact, an endless number of ways that we could all be better than we are. But these changes in our attitudes, these changes in our desires, they start to become want-tos rather than ought-tos or have-tos because they're now a response to God's love for us. One of my favorite verses, I think, is Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think this helps make clear this, this change that occurs as a result of our salvation through Christ. Paul says our good works can't contribute to our righteousness because, well, they're really not that good. And God doesn't need our help. But they're not required of us because we would just brag about how great we are. Jesus says in Matthew, when you received God's gift of grace that's offered through faith in Christ, now you become compelled, you become moved. Your desire changes to do the good works you were created to do. Not as a means to an end, not to earn your salvation, but as a joyful response to God's amazing gift of grace. And when you're doing good works joyfully in response to God's grace, then God is glorified for the changes brought about in your life. People see the change in you. They see the change in your attitude. They see the change in your your lifestyle. And because you're living faith, living by faith in God now through Christ, people are drawn to Jesus through you. 
We're doing the good works, but God is glorified through us. Which also means that the opposite can be true. If we claim to be Jesus' followers, but we're living in a way that doesn't glorify God, then people are not drawn to Jesus at all. They're turned away. You hear that a lot these days. It's an all-too-common charge. So we are to do the right things for the right reasons as a response to God's grace and love for us. And frankly, I've kind of wondered from time to time just why God does love the world. I mean, look around. We ain't that special. We keep believing the lies of the devil. We keep falling into his traps. We keep making up new reasons to hate each other and create division. And sadly, as Christians, we're not always that different from the rest of the world. But I think the first part of this last verse helps us understand why God loves us. It says we are his workmanship. This means so much more than just God created us. Psalm 139 says we're we're fearfully and wonderfully made. The word workmanship here, this has as much to do with the, the quality and skill of the maker as it does with the quality of the thing made. This refers to workmanship as the highest quality. So not only is God's skill on display, his craftsmanship is the highest quality, but the thing he made, us, he considers to be the highest quality. He made us in his image. And even though our sin has tarnished that image and has resulted in our separation from our maker, our creator does not want us to stay in that spiritually dead state, forever separated from him. So out of an abundance of grace and mercy, Jesus died for our sins. And then he rose from the dead to secure for us the possibility of having our image restored. Having a relationship with our creator reestablished and enjoying all the benefits that come along with being the heir of an eternal king. And it's all to highlight his workmanship through us. We are his treasure. And all that was made possible. All this was accomplished for us on our behalf by an empty tomb. The empty tomb proves that Jesus moved, transferred, changed from death to life. And it proves that he desires us to follow him. By believing in faith that God raised Jesus from the dead, by committing our life to following him, we can transition from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive with Christ, with our Father God creator, eternally in heaven. And I would encourage you, if you've not made this decision today, please speak to somebody before you leave. If you have any questions, please come talk to me before you leave today. I'm happy to discuss this further. You can tell me how I'm wrong. Um, And I'll listen, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Um, But just if you have questions or concerns, just don't leave before you get those answers to your questions this morning. Let's pray. Lord, again, we are grateful for the truth of your word uh, that's found in Scripture here, for for the great hope that it provides for us. And that hope is built on your immeasurable love, your immeasurable mercy and grace and Lord we have an eternity of your kindness unending kindness and grace to look forward to and all that was expressed through the 
death, the life, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, on this Sunday above every other Sunday. We thank you for what that means for us. We sorrow that Jesus had to die for our sins, but we rejoice that he willingly did it. Knowing who we, who we are, knowing who he died for, he died for us anyway and offers us eternal life. If we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, we can join him with you in heaven. We're just grateful for all that that means. We thank you for your love for us, for your unending grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.